Hello everyone, welcome back to Design Huddle. Uh, this week we're speaking to a very, very good friend of mine, famous designer. Uh, he's worked at InVision, Twitter, Google, and he's probably best known for being the best friend of Trump advisor, Anthony Scaramucci. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I had to throw that one in there. You can explain all that. Uh, and so, yeah, we have Brendan Kearns. Hello, Brendan. How are you doing? Hi, very good. Thank you. How are you? Oh, not too bad. Um, so welcome to Design Huddle. Um, thank you. Could you give us a bit of introduction about who you are and your background? Sure, of course. Well, you, get, you gave a very quick one before. I'm a designer and now a studio owner. I have a background in design and user experience, largely with a product focus. Um, and yeah, that's kind of it. I guess I have a bit of a patchy career. We've spoken a few times offline about this, but um, my journey into design was fairly predictable, but not what I would say conventional. Did you start off from the art college graphic design background? No, no I was a business and economics student. Um, well, I'll start out with this. I was a terrible high school student, got a shitty mark, um, then blagged my way into a mediocre business school, uh, did about two and a half years of that. So just shy of graduating, I was given the opportunity to take a job. So I basically dropped out to do the job and have um, been disappointing my parents ever since. <laughs> <laughs> and so how did you transition to design then? Was that just basically you took it up as a... It was, yeah, completely self-taught. So the, the job that I took was, this was 2007, 2008. This was very early, um, I want to say like early mature web and digital, where most teams would have like the digital person in the corner. You know, you might be embedded in a marketing team, a comms team, a product team. Um, and it was just one of those jobs that was so junior and broad that I was able to actually experiment quite freely okay. um, and learn through a lot of practice and iteration. And there was a lot of studios around who were doing work with the company I was working with. So the exposure was nice. The curiosity was high. And I just kept iterating until I, um, until I was eventually able to score an agency job years later. So you just basically that was your first job for portfolio building, basically. Sort of, yeah. And just, I mean, more capability building, to be honest, and curiosity. I hadn't, hadn't gone through the, uh, I guess, the creative career preparation. So I didn't really understand different tracks into um, client side work, agency work, um, even tech. And it was, yeah, it was just, it was that initial exposure that I think I kind of sat in the, in the bleachers for a while and was able to look at the kind of roles I'd like to do. And then start learning some of the skills on my own to, to get there. Was that more front-end UI stuff, or were you actually doing the entire process of, like, building it was a, websites? It was a bit of a mix. It was more, if, if it had to be described at the moment, I would say it was, like, a producer role that okay. was also making design decisions um, and working quite closely with, like, project managers and developers, but never taking a technical leadership role, always just being a dog's body to actually, you know, get sites built and... And things out the door so in a sense no different to what you're doing right now then <laughs> yes i guess yeah i was talking to a, a friend of mine the other day was asking like what is the difference now between even google or, or, or 10 years ago and i said there's actually probably more similarities in that i still call myself a designer but it's more about producing an outcome you know the the briefs that come through the studio and the clients that that i have um it's it's a lot less of how are we going to design our way to a, a better solution or product is more about what is the outcome we're aiming for and how do we prescribe the best way of working to get there yeah and it's nice it's kind of freeing it's a more like agnostic form of product um, or problem solving rather 
So you, this was in Australia, right? Because you're originally from Australia. Yeah, of course, if you can't tell by the accent. No, your accent's completely <laughs> bleached out and become more... I think they call it a multicultural London accent. I don't know if that's a, a negative thing. Like, you know, you know, when these terms come up, you think, I think they're trying to say something. Um, <laughs> so how did you transition from this sort of discovery phase of what you wanted to do um, to actually what you ended up getting into big tech? I mean, how did that transition happen? Well, so that I was kind of stuck on the client side for so long um, because the, like, I'm going to say the cool kids in agencies didn't, I didn't have the prerequisites. I didn't go to art college. I didn't do yeah. graduate programs. I didn't have a book that was filled with like even personal experiments that was really enough evidence for them to give me a job. So I guess for years I was chancing it by tying together disparate contracts at like companies like GE or inside banks and smaller firms to just get that product background. Um, um, and design credibility built up to the point that someone would look at it as something that could be sold. And then when I, I, th I can't remember how I actually did it. I think I put together like a one pager for a, like one page site for a pitch for a job and um, didn't really have much work that was relevant to the kind of stuff that this little studio did in, in Collingwood or Fitzroy in Melbourne. Um, and it was only after meeting two of the directors over coffee, they were like, yeah, we, we really like you, that they brought me on as like a senior UXer and, and I was from there leading early stage projects for all kinds of clients, it was great. Did you struggle in the beginning? Because if you came from a more agency designy of like, because the thing, the thing which I find with agencies is that often it's like smash and grab, where you just do the thing and you leave. And yeah. then when you transition to a more, you're only focused on one area of a product, which I think, the traditional designers who come from the art college background will struggle with because you're, you're working on something for maybe 18 months before you might actually see anything happen as a result. Yeah, I think it's probably bookended actually because the first job that I took was actually in government. So the project was two to three years long. Okay. So it was single problem or at least single platform, state of like single project. I think you're right in that there's a perception that agency, agency work of any kind is so fast and shallow you can't really get to the depth of the problem but i think it just means you're problem solving at a different speed when i did make the jump into into product i think my first full-time role in product was at twitter and I, actually i don't think i've told many people this i was hired as a senior and then on the way in a i won't tell you who it was but a, a leader at twitter in the design org said well he hasn't worked in product before so demote him on the way in oh wow <laughs> Oh, what can you do? I mean, yeah, if that's the challenge with big tech is, well, I mean, what I've, what I've sort of discovered is there's a culture of, of product development that's quite advanced in Silicon Valley. And they've noticed that in other parts of the world, they haven't evolved to that same kind of product thinking. Whether it's the right way of thinking or wrong, it's very mature in comparison to, say, like, London was very, um, or is very agency-based. So... Perhaps there's an element of that where they're really suspicious of people. I've I've seen that when I've in previous interviews, people are quite suspicious if you haven't had one of the big tech companies under your belt or like yeah. a big product thing. Um, yeah. So how did you fight through that? I mean, I guess you can't if someone thinks that anyone outside of Silicon Valley doesn't have the same skills or or capabilities, then you, you can't really do anything about that. What what I did find was. Um, 
if they are interested in running a distributed team, so say having a London office or offices all around the world, they kind of have to localise for different culture. So if there's natural talent in London that is, say, more biased towards fintech being a leading industry and product, yeah, you just have to optimise your teams to use that talent effectively or collaborate in the right way. There's a... And I, th- I think it happened to an extent at Google where... Um, I worked as part of Geo, so it was Google Maps and Search and you know a whole bunch of different surfaces. And it was very easy to think of the Mountain View team, so the Silicon Valley team versus the New York team versus the London team. Yeah. But you were all building for the same product. You were all building for a global audience. Um, but there's always going to be a gravitational pull wherever the mothership is. Yeah, I suppose. And um, at the moment, in the moment in tech and product, that's that's largely California. Uh, so, in terms of when you first got into Twitter, did you how how long did it take for you to prove them wrong? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea if I actually did. Um, I, don't, I don't care to be honest. I think I was more interested in making those kind of horizontal connections. So, working with the other designers and engineers and and product managers who are actually building the product, um, and that meant sitting in crappy economy seats for. A long time going back and forth from San Francisco to London, which I know is a very first world problem. But of course, you're trying to do, when you're trying to do detailed work on a Tuesday after you've just flown overnight from the UK and had a terrible night's sleep, it's not very effective. Yeah, no, it's, it kind of works against you. I've experienced that on many occasions. Um, <laughs> did you notice the difference between the the environment or at least the process between agency and Twitter in your first step, or was it not really? Is there no real real difference between the two? I think there definitely is. I mean, the main difference is you see how people approach problems. So in agencies, there's usually some kind of finite amount of money or time. Yeah. Um, whereas when you make the jump to product, it's more about we have a finite amount of attention and time or we have too much to do and a finite amount of time. So that's been an interesting balance. In like most of the conversations you have around agency is just like, when do we need to get it done by? versus product, which is what are we going to do first? What is our priority? How much yeah. impact has that had? So it's just, to be honest, if, if your skills are agnostic and you can be a bit more experimental in how you solve problems, you can really be successful in both environments almost at the same time. I don't think it would really take a, a large retooling. So in terms Men- of like- Mental retooling rather than actual retooling. Yeah, yeah of course. Um, so in terms of like the tradition uh, transition from Twitter, which is, a product for people and a social network to envision where it's like you're designing tools now which is almost like one step meta yeah. like in terms of a problem I mean how was that transition I mean it's to be honest it's it's interesting because you're designing for an audience that's very similar to yourself but because of large, most of my work was on Envision Enterprise you're actually designing for large organizations so you have disparate problems you have multiple types of use cases and you have complexities that you're trying to solve for in a product that you still need the same the same muscles you still need the ability to research and understand the ability to prioritize the ability to solve problems more experimentally the good thing was is you could and i think this is credit to envision's community is you could usually walk into an organization with quite a lot of permission and find out the underlying reasons behind the problems that you're actually solving for which was wonderful. I, I really liked that. And I think that was something that I slightly missed because Envision was a remote company, always has been. You know, this is pre-COVID. That was still quite weird, a, a 
very rare to have a, a fully yeah. distributed firm. So they were actually really well prepared for this kind of world. Why? Well, so yeah, I, I don't know what it's done to their business model, but they, their task for their, their kind of agile workforce has probably been set up for, for years now. So is any pra- I mean, so when you're designing stuff for Envision, was there any practical differences that you noticed apart? From, I mean, you said it was for enterprise. Was it pretty much again same sort of process? Pe- yeah. People working in pods yeah, and working it was exactly on specific the features. Same. And I think I mean, like anything, any product firm that's either pre-IPO or pre-profitability, there's always an appetite for speed and and moving numbers up and to the right over anything else, which is fine. You know, that's 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 what you buy when you when you hire a designer. You, this is a merchant class hiring the skills of people who want to help them get things done. Yeah. Um, so I I didn't notice too much difference. I think it was nice actually to be positioned in a slightly higher part of the company. Like when I joined Envision, there was, I think, less than a dozen designers in a company of 400, maybe. That's cool. And so everyone knew who you were. Um, and that was a nice feeling to be like, you are the target user, or at least maybe not a decision maker all the time, but your input really matters. And everyone from sales to customer success was always interested in having you in the room. It was great. I mean, a question, do you still use Envision? I'm, I have like a kind of daisy chain stack of whatever. Again, I keep talking about like being agnostic. I do yeah. occasionally. I use their freehand tool quite a lot because it's a nice collaborative whiteboard. Yeah. But in terms of prototyping, no. I mean, so I remember there was a time maybe 10, 15 years ago where the design tools were you either used one set or another set and people were very passionate about so you illustrate or freehand or like photoshop or was it fireworks and um and i mean i'm kind of the same these days it's like what most of the prototyping tools have kind of convened onto the same sort of thing that i don't whatever people are using i don't really care it'll take me two weeks to figure out what the interface is but yeah i mean is that I'm how the same. You're... I, I yeah i don't care I, I couldn't give a shit i was um i think it might have been last year, no, it would have been the year before, I was at a speaker dinner before an event and there was a bit of a debate between a very old-time UXer and some other guy talking about the best, best way to prototype in high fidelity and I almost wanted to slap both of them and just say, it's just it's code, it's building products, it's putting things in the hands of people who gives yeah. a shit yeah. about your advocacy for a particular brand of one kind. It honestly doesn't matter. Yeah, no, I mean... Yeah, I mean, it's like Mac or PC. I mean, I've used both in both working environments. I mean, I prefer Apple because I know the system inside out. But I mean, it's like whatever gets the job done at the end of the day. And in a sense, it's like you said, you want to see how people are experiencing the product from the off because that's the thing which is actually going to help you determine the thing that you create. Um, well, that's it. There's a, a funny thing. Like, I mean, this is one of the reasons that I started the studio is um, it doesn't take very long to realize that the what I would say, like missing pieces or some of the the biggest blockers to building really good products is like proximity to people and the problem and the ability to experiment. And I that's like the two things that I talk about when I talk about Rival is when people come on board as clients and when we run projects, it's about getting closer to the problem to understand it better yeah. and to use a cadence of experimentation so you can go from very opaque, ambiguous understanding of it to what are some of the solutions that might start to work rather than well we work in a specific way and then we end up being victims to the the tools we use or the, yeah. the methods that might not be effective in that situation 
Yeah. So when you transitioned um, from Envision to to Google, again, was it just like replacing one team with another team? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the lovely the lovely thing about Google was um, being kind of tapped on the shoulder, and I always make the joke: it's like the mob, like you, you just can't say no when they come knocking at your door. I think yeah, they absolutely. make you they make your life very a- attractive, and, and it's it's a nice thing to have. Um, it's a nice thing to be wanted by a firm that you've admired and products that you use every day. I do think that, you know, Envision's a very small company in yeah. relative terms to Google. And you know this, you work inside Google, it's not really a single company. There's about a hundred different mini tribes within that org that some are obvious, some are not, and they all have very different cultures. So I think I was lucky to land with a very lovely group of people that I enjoyed working with. Um, Especially in London, especially with London can always be the, the branch office of a, of a big tech firm, you know, working in King's Cross where you've got a few thousand engineers and designers all in the one building. I think that was super exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I mean, I always found um, Google's culture was kind of like a bunch of startups because every yeah. team kind of indicates in that way. Yeah. Um, and it's so all the nodes, be- right? It's like it's the it, it's it's. There's no longer like a tech team inside a big org is trying to do something interesting. It's literally stacks of engineers and researchers and designers and technologists all trying to do something interesting at a global scale. And I think there's very rare places you can do that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so then moving on from that, you decided to take the jump to beca- to create your own studio, Studio Rival. Yeah. Um, that must have been kind of scary because if you've got this, like a lot of us in the industry, you work up to work for a big company. I think when I, I started off in the graphic design world, so our dreams was to do the advertising for Nike or whatever. I mean, that was our student. <laughs> That's how we saw the ultimate thing was sportswear giants. Um, but now it's like working for one of the big four in big tech or big five, whatever. Yeah. To 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 t- step away from that stability and also prestige. I mean, that must have yeah. been a bit. What was your thing that made you made you think? Well, I, I mean, emotionally, it's a strange transition. I was it's again talking to a friend of mine who's like you can have a trajectory in your career and interest that once you get a few stripes, you know, or stamps of approval or some kind of social cred that actually becomes your identity. Like, Oh, he's a designer at this company or he's a designer who's worked for this company going out on my own, I think was a bit of a reset. I think I'd lost a lot of the curiosity that drove me in the first place to be self-taught. Um, and having come from the agency world and holding that up to a, or I don't say agency world or consulting world, for so long and holding that up to a standard only to be let down so often I thought I want to create the perfect place to work for me and people like me yeah. um, and if it doesn't work um, I can always try and go get a job <laughs> go back <laughs> go back with your hat in hand this is exactly exactly but yes I mean I suppose what's interesting is what may have potentially hindered your career in the beginning as being not coming from the traditional design background and having all that artwork on your wall that you did and can talk about um the business side is actually probably the thing which has helped you give you the confidence to do what you're doing i'm i'm imagining because a lot of designers really don't know about the business side of stuff i mean as we were speaking before like the likes of christo has basically been educating the design industry about um what it is to to charge and like not treating every piece of work or service as a commodity but as um looking at the problem from how do I solve this problem for you and how much do you value that problem that needs to be solved? Yeah. And I think the interesting thing, people have a, a perception about business school and 
and, and or even just economics in general, most of it is around decision making and um, understanding certain situations and what levers you can pull to influence certain outcomes. So I think when it came to starting the studio, first and foremost is like I wanted to understand what are the values that I have and how do I want to work every day? And then how am I going to show up in a way that turns that into something that is profitable, viable, um, something that other people would want to come and join both clients and and a team. Um, and I, my, you know, my <laughs> this is probably why I dropped out of business school, but my business plan from the beginning was three bullet points. It was prove the concept. The second was build the model. And the third was scale, question mark. And so mm. I think proving the concept took about 18 months. I think I've just got to the point that I've proven it, that it is a viable thing that I can do and services can be packaged and I can still enjoy myself a lot. The second one, which I'm only just studying now, is like, what's the model? What is it when it's more than just Brendan and a network, like a black book of freelancers or, or other studios that I work with? So yeah. what does that scale look like? What does that model look like? And then if that works, is scale something that we go after? And then what does scale look like? Does it mean numbers, buildings? Does it mean an exit? Does it mean sitting nicely for the next 20, 30 years and really enjoying my time? I have no idea. So when you set up a studio, what's the first thing that you actually do? Apart, I mean, once you've got all the go to an account and like uh, set up yeah, yeah. with companies house or whatever the uh, country equivalent is where our listens are based. Um, basically, you, you legally set up an entity that is now Brendan Inc. Um, what do you do? What's the first thing you do? Just rent an office and go, I'm going to fill it, <laughs> fill it with stickies. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at your background right now. That Oh, yeah. Sort of... And this, this white, and we're moving soon. So I have to take all this down and repaint the wall because it's all whiteboard paint. Um, I think first thing you would do is I think even before you start working on your own practice, you have to know exactly who you are and what problems you're going to solve for people. And I would even suggest, I know this is a very well-worn piece of advice, but I would suggest trying to find a good proxy for like seeing whether there's actually a market out there for your speciality, like having, having a point of view on what kind of work you do, who you do it for and what makes you not unique, but more effective or more interesting or more fun to be around. Yeah. Um, I think what I did was I didn't rent a studio. I found the cheapest option I could, which was like hot desking in co-working spaces around London. Um, and I kind of just gave myself 12 months to, to see what kind of work came in and to reframe what was normally freelance or contract opportunities into meaningful client relationships. Yeah. The good thing was I was able to not just sell myself or market myself as a designer who had a background that might be useful to people, but someone who was interested in producing the kind of outcomes that clients really cared about. So like being more innovative, being more collaborative, yeah. building capabilities inside their business to help them be more agile and experimental. Um, and it's still some of the work that I continue to do with Google today, which is great. I mean, so what was the first client that you managed to, are you allowed to talk about this? The so, first... Yeah, I think, who can I talk about? Well, I mean, I can talk about one. One of the first clients I actually got was another part of Google. It was a, oh. it was telling someone over lunch um, that I was leaving in a few days to start my own thing, and then them saying, "Oh, I should introduce you to so and so." So that's been a relationship that I've had ever since, which I'm very grateful for, and they're wonderful people. But in the first year outside of that, it was a lot of 
I would say early stage companies, maybe not startups, but quite early stage companies who were looking for help on like, how do we actually get from zero to one? Like, what does it mean for our product to be more mature? So I would actually play a bit of a role of PM slash designer, which was interesting because I like that discovery part. I like being able to like bring a proposition to, to market. So the thing that you actually brought, so what was the final um, artifact that you would create? So they would hire you to solve a problem that they defined or would it be no. you'd actually come in like a sprint master where you're just running a design sprint or was it more like were you actually designing the end product it's a mix some clients it's more like they just want provocation from a designer it's like here's how things should be or here's what it would actually mean to take this problem you have and turn it into something some of the clients it's in the weeds and i would call it like altitude so there's the thirty thousand feet work which is large-scale strategic like trying to get people together to have good discussions make decisions and then three feet which is how are you going to roll this out as a scalable design system once it ends up going into development and engineering yeah so some of the end deliverables would be designs to be built some of them would be like hand-holding or partnering with engineers to actually bring something out to market and others might just be a deck or or a conversation based on what your recommendations are and they yeah or what it. we've found or research insights helping them make the right call it's it's really telling that's why i keep going back to this sense of like designers who are agnostic like might have a bent for digital products and what it means for companies to to transform themselves into digital product companies but at the end of the day we don't really care how we do that and the only common thread is probably that we're quite fast and experimental when we do it so with all that said, where would you like to see Studio Rival in, say, five years? Would you like to be one of the agencies that... Because I've seen, like, when... Because um, I, I gave a sort of mini talk to a company recently, and we are talking about this evolution of UX designer and product designer. Um, and UX design is almost becoming, like, a dirty word. Now everyone wants to be product designers because it's the new thing on the block. Um, and I was explaining to him, like, a product designer is, like, one of those flexible designers who almost crosses with a PM, you're actually designing the strategy of the product rather than just implementing yeah. what the company perceives to be the problem. Yeah. Um, and so we were talking about, uh, from an agency side, what's the best process? Do you just smash and grab, go in, fix a product, do a thing of, of after six, 12 months, and then you leave? Yeah. Or do you create a team inside of it so you're embedded yeah. and slowly scale up the company to hire someone? Or like, yeah. what, what would you like to be your preferred or what is your preferred model rather see there's this new question it there's a, a firm that i work with and actually they share a space in my building called planes and a lot of their proposition a lot of their whole kind of attractiveness to clients is that they come in and act as their product team they build the scaffolding and processes so they can start slotting in their clients talent into those key positions and eventually yeah. remove the scaffolding and leave which i think is a super interesting model not just from how you can run a consulting or studio business, but how you can build teams with rented expertise that are more than just guns for hire to execute on a preconceived plan. Yeah, I don't really have an opinion, but I don't think, given that it's a service business, I don't think that Rival will, will ever be something that ends up being in hundreds of staff. I, I, I'm more comfortable with deep personal relationships. So in five years, I would be happy if we're doing, and I won't say the 
target budget that I have for five years from now. But <laughs> I would be very happy if I had a dozen or so people doing very high quality, high caliber, high impact work for yeah. companies that need it most. And I don't think that it's going to be a lot of early stage companies. I think it will be working with mostly larger corporates who are trying to do things in a more experimental way. They're trying to adapt to either whether it's new threats, opportunities they want to pursue, or just trying to understand their customers more so they can build shit that actually fucking matters. Yeah. Um, so before I let you go, because you're still, you're going to have, like, you have to run off to something else. Um, if there's one piece of advice that you could give to, say, like a designer who would like to get into big tech or would like to set up a studio, I mean, what would be your prime bit of advice? Emulate. Literally. If, if like, I, I, this is personal so there's a whole bunch of survivor bias in here if you want to learn how to do something emulate how someone's done it try and repeat it because then you'll learn the actual gritty details behind the process you'll learn some of the underlying skills that aren't obvious in the end output and beyond that just talk openly so i think building in public especially when you're very early in your career is fascinating someone will stumble across you that am either they might be a mentor they may be a potential hiring manager and that can be extremely useful. Um, and the end of the thing is realize that you're not competing with other designers like you. There may be situations where you are when you're head to head in interviews or pitches. Yeah. But really, you have more to learn from people above and below you and at your same level than than is probably obvious. And get off Twitter. Who cares? You don't. I say, you don't I, think... I, I, I say this as, as someone who spends most of my day on Twitter. But like. The... With your 10,000 <laughs> followers, I'm not bitter. <laughs> well, that's what happens when you just work for social media companies and tech firms. There's this implied credibility that isn't real. Do you I think just, it's the I... Empress Clothes? Because I'm assuming this the bubble's going to pop and people are going to realize that influencers are just puzzlers. <laughs> who cares? I know, right? I've got more respect for the guy who, like, out the back of our window, there's <laughs> a, a guy who has to, like, on his cigarette breaks who I've never seen not at work. I think he runs a a Vietnamese restaurant my studio window looks back out into an alleyway and it's like he does hard work the person trying to sell you tea or another course but then again I'm not the market yeah well that's the thing it's like when the iPod iPads first came out I screamed because it was the first I was so angry at Apple because I expected them to release a, a laptop with a touch screen but then I realized that it was the first product that Apple produced where I wasn't in the market and that really upset <laughs> me at the time uh, <laughs> because you know I had no friends and these things were important to me um, <laughs> well we're white guys in tech everything should what don't they say that Silicon Valley is basically inventing babysitting services for for white dudes yeah probably um, <laughs> and yeah so I said before we go but because we did it in the introduction so how is your relationship with Anthony Scaramucci <laughs> <laughs> So you have to give background on this. I think that, what was it? He followed me for some reason. He randomly um, followed you on Twitter after he um, was fired he or quit. Yeah. yeah or I, well, he's a nutcase, isn't he? He's like in the Trump camp and um, well, he, no offense he, to anyone who was a Trump supporter, but he was there for all of four days or three days. Yeah, he was he there for a very short amount of time. He was, he said some um, very interesting things about <laughs> not wanting to inflate or I'm not going to say what he said. Um, and then suddenly he, he was gone and then he started following you on Twitter. And then I you... think it was probably a social media like bot or something or an account that he was trying to do like growth through follow, unfollow. I yeah, think but that's you... fairly common. 
But you also asked him a really important design question via DM, which was. Oh yeah, I asked him if he should design his code, and I never, I never got anything back. Also, <laughs> you... I don't, also, I don't really care about the answer. I mean, wouldn't it be funny if he actually gave you a really articulate? Well, actually, I think designers should code, but it's not what it's, it's not about coding; it's whether it should be in production. Like really, <laughs> like you would respect him even more. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, oh, he never replied. I, I saw him in a documentary the other day. I think he's still crazy. Did he mention about his relationship with you? Because I imagine like, <laughs> <laughs> and there's this one designer, Brendan Kearns, who I've been following. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, if he, because if he did, I mean, you know, everyone wants that quote that they put on this um, imaginary book that they'll eventually write. I mean, that would yeah. be the thing. What you know, maybe he. Put I don't know. I d yeah, I don't know if I want that on a book. I don't think. <laughs> I don't think that'd go for the audience. I want to be comfortable having a chat with. Well, if it's a business, it's all about the money, isn't it? Well, imagine he puts on his book, he puts, <laughs> and Brendan Kern said, I should design this code. Oh, oh God. Anyways, uh, I think we're, we've done that to death. Um, well, thank you so much for being part of the podcast. Um, uh, yeah, so yeah, take care and speak soon. Thanks. Cheers, mate. Bye. Bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Design Huddle. The opinions expressed are solely our own and do not express the views or opinions of our employer.